The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, July 30th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. It's good to see you guys. Go ahead and grab your Bibles, open them up, Galatians chapter 4. That's where we're going to be this morning. And as we begin, let me read something to you uh, from a book some of you might be familiar with. Uh, it's a book written by a man named J.I. Packer. Uh, the title of the book is Knowing God, and it was a book that was given to me early in my journey with the Lord, and it's a book that I go back and reference very regularly, but probably reread every couple of years or a few years. Um, in the book Knowing God, Packer says this, what is a Christian? It's a fundamental question, right? What is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be greater than our grasp of adoption. The truth of our adoption by God gives us the deepest insights that the New Testament affords into the greatness of God's love. So Packer says, when, if I were to be asked to focus the entirety of the New Testament message into three words, you think Twitter's hard. If I had to focus the entirety of the New Testament in three words, my proposal would be this, adoption through propitiation. And Packer said, I'd never expect to meet a richer or more pregnant summary of the gospel than that. He just said that the biblical doctrine of adoption provides you and I with the richest answer to the question, what is a Christian? And the biblical doctrine of adoption gives you and I the deepest insight we could ever have into the greatness of God's love, and not just the greatness of God's love in general, but the greatness of God's love for you. And so if you're anything like me and you wake up some days and you can tell yourself and encourage yourself and, and believe that by the grace of God, through faith in His Son, He has indeed saved me from my sins and forgiven me of my sins and I can have a measure of assurance in my heart to know that when I stand before Him, when that day comes, He will receive me into His presence for all of eternity because of what His Son has done on my behalf. Yes and amen. But today, I wake up wondering if He really likes me. Is He going to receive me into eternity because He has to? He did what needed to be done for me to be forgiven and made right with him, and he will not and cannot go back on his word. But if you were to push him against the wall and ask him what he really thought about me, knowing me and knowing my day and knowing my thoughts and knowing my inclinations, my gut response some days would be, I think I'm a disappointment to him. I know what he's done, yes and amen. I don't doubt that he has saved me by grace through faith in his son, but I'm really not sure some days whether or not he likes me. And I travel throughout my journey on this earth with the Lord with this nagging suspicion in my heart and in my mind. Does he really love me? Does he really like me? Or is he just tolerating me because, well, he has to. This suspicion is something that many of us carry as a companion with us in our journey on this earth and Sinclair Ferguson, who's another wonderful pastor, has arguably the greatest preaching Scottish accent I have ever heard, captured this, and he was reflecting on the, the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. And I want to read you an extensive piece of what Ferguson said about this, because I hope it will help connect you with this before we get into Galatians 4. And I'm not going to try to imitate the accent, so don't expect it. But Ferguson wrote a book on the doctrine of adoption, and he said this, although the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15 is probably the best known and loved of all of Christ's parables, the lesson that it teaches us is often overlooked. 
Jesus was underlining the fact that the reality of the love of God for us is often the last thing in the world to dawn upon us. Ferguson just said, we're going to go back, Ferguson just said, the reality of God's love for you is often the last penny to drop in your heart. And he's reflecting on the parable of the prodigal, and he's particularly thinking about this moment in the story when the son returns home. He's gone through everything he's been through. He comes back home to his father. He says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But do you remember what he asks his father when he comes back home? He said, if you will only take me back, receive me back like one of your hired servants. I'll, I'll eat with the pigs. I'll work with the servants. Just take me back as one of them. Ferguson's reflecting on that response of the prodigal with his father. And he goes on to talk a bit about how you and I often look at that as a measure of humility. Knowing what he had done, coming back to his father, willing to go. He said that's not a measure of humility, it's the height of insult. Because that son was either thinking in his heart that his father wasn't wealthy enough to receive him back into the home and give him what he squandered, or he was unwilling to receive him back into his home. He didn't really know the way the father thought about him. So Ferguson goes on, and I want you to hear this. He says, it seems impossible to us as you and I fix our eyes upon ourselves. We fix our eyes on our past failures, our, our present guilt. It seems impossible that the Father should love us. So many of us go through so much of our lives with what he called the prodigal suspicion. Our concentration is upon our sin and our failure. Your thoughts are always introspective. Like the prodigal, you and I have a native inability to believe that salvation is completely by grace and love. We're slow to realize the implications of this. We have the status as sons, but we carry with us the mindset of a hired servant. Now, Ferguson is going to go on, and he's going to have a conversation with you. He's going to go back and forth with you as you're trying to respond to what he just said. Oh, no, that's not me. We've been going through Galatians 3. I know who I am because of what God's done for me in Christ I know exactly who I am. I'm justified, I'm righteous, I'm adopted as his child. Well, Ferguson says, you may say that. You may say in your head, oh, I believe I'm saved by grace. I believe I'm a child of God, but you don't. Why? You don't relate to him that way. Let me ask you, why are you so sensitive to criticism? Why do you walk around feeling like such a failure? Why, when you've done something wrong, does it take so long for your heart to start to live a normal life again? Whenever you have to ask for forgiveness or repent to somebody else, why is there never any joy to it? Why does it always feel like psychological death to you? Why are you secretly comparing yourself to other people all the time, filled with jealousy, bitterness, self-doubt? Yes, you say, I believe in the doctrine of adoption. I believe that when I became a Christian, I'm adopted, I'm accepted. Ferguson says, no, you don't. You believe that you have the legal status, yes, but you don't yet have the experience of it. This morning, my hope for us together as a group, myself included, is that God, by His grace and the work of His Holy Spirit this morning, would begin to shrink the gap in our hearts between what we think God feels about us and how He actually does. That the gap that exists, and we'll get to it in just a little bit, the gap that exists in our hearts between what we think God feels about us and what we think God sees when He looks at us is and what it really is. My prayer is that it will it'll close, ever so slightly even, for our joy in God's glory. And to get there, let me bring you up to speed with what's happening in the letter that Paul has written to these churches. If you haven't been with us, Paul has written the letter that we're reading to a group of churches that were in the region of Galatia. Paul had gone to that region. He had preached the gospel. People had heard the good news of the gospel, received salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone. Churches had been formed, and as the churches were formed, Paul moved on to another region. And after Paul moved on to another region, a group of teachers moved into the region of Galatia, and they had begun teaching these new churches that in order to be fully accepted by God, 
Yes and amen, God saved you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but to fully be accepted by him, to know you're right in his eyes, to know his affection is towards you, you need to submit yourself. Many of these people were not Israelites. You need to submit yourself to God's Old Testament law and ceremonial rules. In particular, circumcision. Paul's been writing this letter to these churches helping them to understand that these teachers were completely misunderstanding and misapplying the law. In fact, what they were encouraging these churches to do and what they were encouraging these churches to believe, Paul said in chapter 2, verse 22, is a nullification of the grace of God entirely. And so if you've been with us in chapter 3, Paul has built a very dense and very systematic argument trying to help us see that the law of God was never meant to be a means for us to earn our salvation. It was never meant to be a means for us to save ourselves from our sin. Rather, the law of God was meant to expose to us the reality and the depth of our sinfulness and cultivate in us a desperation for our Savior. That's why in chapter 3, verse 19, Paul finally asks a rhetorical question, why then the law? If the law can't be a means by which I perform for God to assure his affection for me, what's its point, Paul? And we've seen in the last couple of weeks how Paul answered that in verses 23 and 24. The law has held us captive. It's imprisoned us. It was to be our guardian until Christ came. So chapter 4, Paul continues with the argument. And to get us to the place of understanding who we are in God's eyes and experiencing that reality, Paul reminds us again of who we were before God sent his son Verse 1, I mean that as an heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave. Though he's the owner of everything, he's, he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Paul's going back to the illustration we've seen the last couple of weeks, this process of coming of age that was a reality in society back then where an heir of an inheritance from the time he was about five until in various situations you can read in history books, 16, 18, or even 23, whatever time his father set, for him between the age of about four or five and that time, his life was managed by guardians who took him everywhere he went, who disciplined him for disobedience, who put rules in front of him. They were his escorts, his protectors, his disciplinarians, and all the inheritance that was set to be his was managed for him by trustees. Though in the legal sense, he was the owner of all of it because of who he was, he didn't possess any of it. And so that's why Paul says, even though he's the heir, sometimes he can feel much more like being a hired servant. Because everybody's telling you where to go, what to do, disciplining you, and what's rightfully yours by who you are isn't yet in your possession. So Paul takes us back to this reality and says, the same way, so were, us, so were we also. When we were children, we were enslaved. The law held us captive. The law imprisoned us. It was our guardian, Paul said, until Christ came in order that through Christ we might be justified by faith and not by works of the law. So what Paul is reminding them of something we've already said and he's already said is that until Christ came, until the work of God in your heart by his spirit opened your eyes to see the glory and the beauty of God in the face of his son, until the grace of God moved upon your heart that you might believe upon his son by faith, you were enslaved, imprisoned, to your sin, by your sin, and you could not get yourself out of it. You needed a Savior. And so in reminding them of who they were, Paul then points their attention to the most glorious and gracious of provisions for this situation. Look at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Those two verses are worthy of an entire year's worth of sermons and an entire lifetime of reflection and meditation. While you were enslaved by your sin to your sin, while you, Paul will tell the Romans, were still sinners, God acted. God sent God graciously changed everything for you. Bottom line there is simply this. Being found in Christ, as we've talked about the last couple of weeks, being a Christian is the result of what God's done for you. 
You did not set yourself free from the chains of your own sin. You didn't pick the locks and break free yourself. God graciously set you free. Spurgeon try, tries to find a way to impress this reality home for his congregation. This is what Spurgeon said about this verse. He said, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Notice this. We moved not an inch towards the Lord, but the Lord towards us. I do not find that the world in repentance sought after its maker at all. No. The offended God himself in infinite compassion broke the silence and came forth to bless his enemies. All good things, Spurgeon said, begin with him. And just consider for a moment the richness of what Paul's communicating here. And we can't even begin to do it justice. But what Paul says is that in the fullness of time, not a moment too soon, not a moment too late, redemptive history for all of time, Paul says, had been pregnant, waiting until the day was right for the Son of God to come forth. That's the imagery he has there. In the fullness of God's redemptive plan, history was pregnant with the awaiting of His Son. Not a moment too soon and not a moment too late. God sent forth His Son because the Son of God was the only one uniquely qualified to set sinful men and women like you and I free. How was He uniquely qualified? Well, that's what Paul wants you to see in the verse. He was born of a woman. The Son of God to redeem sinful men and women like you and I had to be like us. If he wasn't fully like us, he could have never been our substitute. He could have never redeemed sinful men and women like us. But he didn't simply need to be fully like us. He needed to be fully God as well. He was, Paul said, the very Son of God. God the Son. Fully man, fully God, born under the law. When Jesus was born, he was born subject to the entirety of God's law. This was necessary to redeem you and I because if Jesus had not been obligated to keep God's law perfectly, and if Jesus had not done that, he could never redeem you and I from the curse of the keeping the law imperfectly. He could never set us free from the chains of our own sin, from the chains of our own transgression, if he had not done what we could not do and if he did not do it perfectly. If he wasn't a perfectly righteous man, he could not redeem unrighteous and sinful men. But Jesus born, being born under the law doesn't just mean he was born under the obligations of obedience. He was also then born under the obligations of disobedience and the curses of disobedience. So Paul wants you to understand Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son, truly God, truly man, born of a woman, perfect obedience to the law was in order to redeem those who were under the law. God sent His Son to liberate, to set free from imprisonment by the law and set free from enslavement to sin, sinful men and women like you and I. Now, that deserves a year of its own exploration. Paul says something else that I want you to notice. If you write in your Bibles, if you, I hope you do. I mean, I, it's okay to do that. And I hope you use them. I know the screens, you just stare at the screen. You can use a Bible. But that's another story. The next two words are crucial. You're going to capture the weight of what Paul's saying and hopefully allow it to explode in you by his work in a few minutes. You need to catch the next two words. The next two words are key. God sent his son to redeem those who were under the law. What are the next two words? So that. Circle that, underline that, highlight that, whatever you need to do. Because what those two words mean is that all that God the Father had done in sending God the Son and all that God the Son had done in living the life that we were created to live and in dying in our place for our sin, the death that we deserve to die, all that God the Father and all that God the Son had done to achieve our justification, our redemption, all that God the Father and all that God the Son had done to make us right before God, His sacrificial, propitiating, atoning death, all of that was so that something else could happen. As brilliant as justification is, and Paul's been arguing for justification this entire way, 
Justification is the foundational blessing of the gospel because the most foundational need that every single one of us has is to be made right before God, for our sins to be dealt with, that we might be able to be right with Him. It is foundational, but what Paul is saying and what theologians will agree and help you to understand is that it is not the highest blessing of the gospel. This so that means redemption and justification weren't the end. God moved through redemption, Paul says, to adoption. God the Father sent the Son. The Son lived and died in our place, the death we deserve to die for our sins, redeeming us from the curse of the law so that we might receive adoption. What Paul is saying is that God made enslaved men and women like you and I into sons through the death of his own son. It's this verse that makes Packer in writing a whole chapter about this idea say that to be right with God the judge is a great thing. That's justification. It's foundational. It's a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is even greater. Another pastor in trying to communicate this says this, and I want you to hear it because I don't think I can communicate it as well. He said, do the words closeness Affection and generosity describe your perception of God and your experience with God? If not, you may perhaps be living with an ignorance of adopting grace. Adopting grace is meant to convince you of God's love for you. Adopting grace is meant to convince you of God's affection for you his closeness with you, his generosity towards you. Adopting grace is about being wanted. Did you hear that? Remember that prodigal suspicion that nags the heart? I know he has to do something, but does he want to? Oh, he has to receive me, but does he really love me? Adopting grace is about being wanted, personally wanted by God the Father. Adopting grace reveals his deep affection for you. So this pastor goes on and asks his congregation this, are you convinced of God's love for you? If not, the implications are serious. If you're uncertain about the disposition of the Father's heart towards you, you're carrying around that nagging prodigal suspicion that Ferguson was talking about, it will affect everything about you. If you aren't convinced of the Father's disposition towards you, you will find yourself vulnerable to all manner of travails like legalism and condemnation and introspection and despair, there will be a distinct absence of joy in your life. You'll find yourself living with a low-grade form of guilt and fear. Why? Because if we're not convinced of the disposition of God the Father's heart towards us, of His personal affection for us and His wanting of us, where else can you look? to figure out whether or not that's true. Where else are you left to look? You're left to look at yourself. Am I worthy of it? Have I done enough to get it? If I'm not convinced that he actually loves me and wants me and is affectionate towards me, all I can do is look at myself and see whether or not I've done anything to try to earn it from him. And you find yourself, like this writer said, with a low-grade, constant sense of fear and despair and guilt and joyless. And Paul does not want that for the church. He doesn't want you to settle for that. And honestly, as you'll see in the rest of the verses, neither does God. So Paul directs the eyes of the church away from ourselves and fixes them squarely on the intention of God and the expression of his love and his desire for us as he reminds us that he sent intentionally his son to redeem sinful enslaved people like us that we might become his sons, his heirs. One writer will say to understand adopting grace is to be amazed by grace. But I want you to understand something else. Paul has something even greater in mind for you than being amazed by grace. As amazing as that is. God intends for you not simply to be amazed by his adopting grace. 
He intends for you to experience the affection of it. It's altogether different to know about it and to live in the experience of it. It's for this reason that Paul says God sent His Spirit into your heart. Look at verse 6. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Immediately you hear and you see the parallels. Verse 4, God sent His Son. Verse 6, God sent His Spirit. I want you to catch this. This is going to be important for understanding what Paul's saying. In the sending of the Son, in the life, the death, the resurrection of the Son, by the grace of God through faith in the Son, God has achieved for you the objective status of heir, of son. That's your identity. That's your status. It's objective. And here's the thing. It's true whether you feel like it or not. You catch that? You got to understand this. This is, this is huge for what Paul's saying. In the sending of the Son, God has accomplished and achieved for you the objective status of Son. Whether you feel like it or not. But in the sending of the Spirit, God intends for you to experience, to feel like who you really are, to appropriate, to live out of the reality of who you are. God intends in the work of the Spirit to close the gap in your heart between what you think God feels about you and the reality of how God feels about you. This is often, like Ferguson said, the last penny to drop. Now Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was one of the greatest pastors of the 20th century. Again, phenomenal accent. I can't even begin to imitate it. But he was trying to explain this reality to his congregation because it's hard for us to get our heads around, right? So he gave an illustration, and I'll try to paraphrase it and make sense of it for us because he gave it a decades and decades ago. So imagine this. Imagine me, my neighborhood, walking along the sidewalk, holding my son's hand when he was little. My son's here. I'd have him come up here and do this, but he's as big as I am. So you're going to lose the effect of the illustration here, okay? So, sorry. Walking along the sidewalk, we did it 10,000 times when he was little. When he was learning to walk, just walking along the sidewalk, holding his hand, enjoying the outside, enjoying each other. He knows I'm his dad. He knows I love him. He knows he's my son. He knows I care about him, right? That's his status. That's his identity. Now, what he doesn't know is that in a moment, I'm going to pick him up. I'm going to hold him tight. And I'm going to kiss him. And let me ask you this. When I pick him up, hold him tight, and kiss him, is his status any more my son than when we were just walking on the sidewalk holding hands? Is he any more my son when I scoop him up, kiss him, and hold him tight than he was when we were holding hands walking on the sidewalk? No. His status hasn't changed at all. And this was Lloyd-Jones' point. Lloyd-Jones says, but oh, the difference in the enjoyment of the status. There's a difference between understanding and knowing something and actually enjoying it and experiencing it. Spurgeon had a hard time getting his congregation to understand this too. And I know I feel like I'm like on a treadmill or trying to make sure your eyes kind of, oh yeah, I get that now. Spurgeon's trying to figure this out too. So he goes to the prodigal son, just like Ferguson did. He goes to Luke 15. And Spurgeon, if you know anything about Spurgeon, he would take 27 of the most beautifully written verses and preach an entire sermon on four words. I mean, it's crazy. He picked two words and preached a sermon. So on the prodigal son, Spurgeon preached a sermon on four words. The father kissed him. Spurgeon's point was something similar to what Ferguson was making in trying to help his congregation understand this. The son comes back to the father, but in his heart, he knew he was the father's son, but he did not believe the father was willing to receive him back as his son. The whole time he comes back and says, let me live with the pigs, let me be a servant. The robe was there, the ring was there, the fatted calf was there, it was all there. Dad was there, but he didn't believe dad was willing enough to receive him back that way. He didn't believe in the reality of who he was, so the father kissed him. Altogether different experience to enjoy the reality of who you are. There is a chasm in our mind, in our heart, in the deep-seated reality of who we are between what we think God feels about us and how God actually feels. 
Yes, he has saved me by grace through faith in Christ. But now I keep my eyes focused on myself and wonder whether or not I've done enough to deserve it, whether or not I'm worthy enough of his love. I can't go to him because I know me. That's the prodigal suspicion. I find it illustrated in no better way than than the end of the movie Saving Private Ryan. You ever seen that movie? I'll try not to ruin the whole thing for those who haven't. But it starts with a man who had fought in World War II going to the memorial and standing over the the tombs of of those that he had been in war with. And the rest of the movie up until the end is the story between that man and the tombs that he's looking at. That man was in war. His brothers had died. And they determined, the military determined, that they would go get this soldier, take him home so that his mother did not lose all of her sons in war. And the movie is the story of this group of men going to save Private Ryan to get him from where he was back home to his mom. And in the midst of that, they went through a whole number of harrowing experiences and journeys. Many of them died. And in the moment in the movie, when the man who was assigned to the mission to go and save Private Ryan, he ends up losing his life. And as he was taking his dying breath, he was looking back at Ryan, who he had gone to rescue. And do you remember what he said? Go earn this. Those were the words he left Ryan with. And at the end of the movie, this man who's lived the rest of his life under the weight of trying to figure out whether or not he had done enough. I'm here, I'm alive, you saved me. There's no denying that, but did I do enough? And he has a conversation with the grave. I did the best I could. I lived the best that I could figure out how to live. Did I earn it? Did I do it? He has no way of knowing. That's the suspicion that exists in our hearts Yes, you've saved me. Yes, I'm not going to deny that. Yes, I believe that. But when we don't understand the way that the Father sees us, we live with this same kind of nagging suspicion. Have I done enough? Is there anything else I, I need to do? What Paul is saying is that the Spirit of God works in your heart to close the gap between what you think God feels about you and how he actually feels, who you already are by his grace. That's what Paul is describing in verse 6. Because you are sons, that's the objective reality that was accomplished in the sending of the son to live and to die in your place. That is who you are, whether you feel like it or not. Because you are a son, God sends the spirit of his son into your heart because that's where the suspicion lives. It's that inner you, the heart in the Bible, the intersection of your intention, your motivation, your will that propels your action. It's that core you. It's there the suspicion lives. It's it's there that the battle rages. So God the Father sends the spirit of his son there that he might convince you of who you are, that the gap might close between what you think God feels about you and how God thinks about you, that you might live out of the reality of who you are. But Paul says something specific here, three words. So my mini sermon, my mini Spurgeon sermon, the evidence of the closing of the gap and the work of the Holy Spirit. He sends the spirit of his son into your heart crying, Abba, Father. Now I'm going to be honest with you. In studying this text, I realized for the first time, because it's not the first time I've read Galatians 4, it's not the first time I've studied Galatians 4, it's the first time I've really studied it to do this, I realized in studying it that the key to understanding Galatians chapter 4 verse 6 are these last three words. They make all the sense of what Paul is saying. So I realized that I needed to go learn Galatians chapter 4 verse 6 anew because I didn't understand it rightly because if you're like me and you're familiar with it, you've probably heard someone teach or you've read somewhere that this cry of the Spirit, Abba Father, is pointing to or leading to the privilege that we have now as sons, as heirs, to come to God not as a distant father that we have to perform for, not as a judge that we have to perform for, but as a dad ready to receive us, that we have the freeness of affection to come and to talk to him and to pray. That's how I've always understood it, and that's true. That's not the fullness of what Paul's saying, though. And I felt like the answer to it was in these three verses, but I wasn't really sure. So I contacted friends and I contacted other pastors who had taught this and who had studied this doctrine far more deeply than I had to help me better understand what Paul's saying here. And and I found out that my suspicion was right. 
There's more there than that. And it's the key in these three verses to help you understand what God is doing for your joy in your heart by His Spirit. And it starts by understanding this word crying. If you go and you use Logos software or some other Bible software, I encourage you, go put this word in that software and do a word search on it. What you will find when you do a word search on it is that nowhere in the New Testament is this word used for prayer. This word actually means a passionate exclamation of the soul. It means an instinctual response from the core. It means how you respond instinctively to an external stimulus, good or bad. It's how you just instinctively react. So I told the other congregations this already, and I'll say it here because she's here and can back it up. I have learned in 15 years of marriage that if I sneak up on my wife to surprise her, her instinctual response is not to yell or scream. It's to hit. That's just how she is. Two of our kids, same thing. You watch their response, it's violence. That's just it. It's just instinct. This word we have here, crying, it's used throughout the New Testament. It's an umbrella word for this, this instinctual gut-level response to a situation. So if you look at where it's used in the New Testament, you'll find it's used, let's just use Matthew and Mark alone, in those two Gospels in the same places in the same ways. So you'll find the story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Remember that? Coming in on the donkey, palm fronds going down, the crowds were crying out, Hosanna. The instinctual response to the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem, the people cried out, Hosanna. A few chapters later, Matthew and Mark both record, though, the crowd standing before Pilate, Jesus or Barabbas. The instinctual response to the external stimulus of the moment, crucify him. Crucify him. Matthew and Mark both record in the story of the Gadarene demoniac. When Jesus approached the demoniac and the demon's instinctual response to the presence of Jesus was fear. What have you to do with me, they cried out. Matthew chapter 14 uses the word too to talk about the disciples. When Jesus was walking on the water and they saw Jesus walking on the water, Matthew records in chapter 14 that they cried out in fear. This crying, this word, is an umbrella word for the instinctual response of the heart to any given stimuli. It's it's the core reality of how you respond. It's why I don't think Paul is talking specifically about prayer here. We'll get there in, in a moment. But you put that word together with this next one, Abba. It's an Aramaic word. You're probably familiar with it. you probably heard people preach about it. you probably read books about it. It was a title most often given to dads and to granddads, but it was a title that communicated something. It has a weight to it. And the weight to it was one of trust and affection. It's the, you think about a granddad who'd be sitting on the chair or sitting on the sofa, and his grandkids knew that at any moment they could come up into his lap and into his arms. He'd never push them away. They were always safe. He was always welcoming them. They were always able to come. He was always able to listen. No one else was more important in that moment. They were safe with him. He was open to them. That's what that word communicated. That's the relationship that's in that word, okay? So what Paul is saying is that God sends the spirit of his son into your heart, the place where the chasm and the battle exists between what you think God feels about you and how God actually feels about you, and his spirit is working to change the disposition of your heart, to shrink that gap so that your instinctual response is he's there, he's open, he wants me, he's receiving me, he's holding me, I'm safe with him, he's the one I go to, he's the one I want to be with, he's always there for me, no one else is more important in the moment than me, I'm safe and I can go to him. Paul's saying the, the objective work of the Spirit is to help you see who you are. It's to close the gap between what you think God feels about you and how he feels about you. It's to change the, dis, the, the disposition of your heart. That in response to moments is to respond to God, to go to him, not as a distant father that you have to perform for, as a judge you have to perform for, but as an Abba, a Papa, a dad who you're safe with, who wants no one else in that moment but you, whose attention you have, whose love you have, whose affection you have, whose trust you have. This isn't about getting to the place in your spiritual journey where you use the word daddy when you pray. I've heard that too. I've been with people 
who feel like the fullness of this verse is getting to the place where you're comfortable standing up in front of people and going, Daddy, that's not the point. It's not about the word. It's about the disposition of the heart that instinctually responds to Abba, Papa, Daddy. The Holy Spirit is at work cultivating that disposition of your heart that you might live out the reality of who you are so that the instinctual response of your heart to God changes. And as the gap closes and as the disposition changes, your capacity to live today and tomorrow out of that reality changes. That's where I think prayer becomes a fruit of what the Holy Spirit is doing. It's an aspect, so it's not wrong to see this in relation to that, but you see it's being produced by something else. As the disposition changes, as the gap closes, you and I more freely go to God as one who wants to listen to us. One who's not deterred by our performance earlier in the day. One who we're safe to talk to. One who, when we find ourselves in a place of need, is the first one we go to. One who we know whose arms are always open to us, whose lap is always ready for us, who's not going to push us off or tell us something else is more important. The disposition has changed. That's where I think it's a fruit. And I want you to see there's a couple of things happening here. I believe it's the objective work of the Holy Spirit in your heart to convince you of who you really are, that you might live out of that reality. That's the objective work. That's what he's doing. He's changing the disposition. But I also think there's another aspect to what the Holy Spirit is doing and what God intends. And I think this is why Paul uses this particular word, cries. If Paul was simply talking about prayer, he could have used any number of words for that. Instead, he uses the word cry. And you know a cry, when you think about it as that instinctual response, is by definition abnormal. It's not the 24-7 reality, right? I'm not always walking around 24 hours a day, seven days a week, trying to surprise my wife, trying to scare her or make her respond. Those instinctual responses, they're by definition abnormal. They're by definition extraordinary. Part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your heart is to cultivate in you an experience, a subjective, affectionate experience of your sonship. I think that's why he uses that word, because there's an extraordinary, that's two words, not one word, two words, an extraordinary sense that God gives on occasion to his children of his affection for them, an affectionate experience in the heart that responds to the reality of being cherished by the Father. Again, Spurgeon trying to help us understand it. Spurgeon says, some of us have have known what it is to be too happy to live. The love of God has been so overwhelmingly experienced by us on a few occasions. It's extraordinary. It's been so experienced by us on a few occasions that we almost had to ask God to stop the delight, for we couldn't endure it anymore. If God had not shielded his love and his glory a bit, I think we would have died for joy. The Puritans used to describe this, this moment when God gives his children by the Spirit in their heart this extraordinary sense of his affection for them. The Puritans used to call it a thin space, a space when the distance between us and the eternal got so thin it was almost non-existent. That the presence and the cherishing love of God for them as his child became so real and affectionate to your heart. Like Spurgeon said, you wanted to say, stop because I can't take it anymore. Part of the work of the Holy Spirit and the intention of God the Father for his children is for you not just to know in your mind and in your heart the objective status of who you are, but to live out of it. To enjoy it, much like I would pick my son up and hold him tight and kiss him. doesn't change who he is, but hopefully the enjoyment of who he is is different. God intends the same thing for his children. These cries, by definition, these moments, they're, they're abnormal. But occasionally, on occasion, like Spurgeon said, you and I are given by God in the work of the Spirit an extraordinary experience of his affection. You can't make it happen. There isn't a progression of chords a musician can play. I know people think that's true. You've probably been in those churches. Music's playing. A lull comes in the music, and everybody knows what's about to happen. It's supposed to be the emotional part, right? 
There isn't a prayer that you can pray. There isn't a book that you can read. There isn't anything that you can do to manufacture these moments. These are the work of God the Spirit in your heart, convincing you of who you are and allowing you in a moment to have an affectionate experience of God's love for you. So sometimes I'm driving in the car. Songs are playing, music's playing. I'm not even thinking about it, but something happens. Something's said. Something's done, and the space gets thin. And I don't know why I'm crying. I don't know why I feel this overwhelming sense of his love. But the space got thin. Sometimes with my kids, maybe it's how we're interacting. Maybe it's the way they're coming to me and the way they're showing their love for me. Something in that moment by the work of God the Spirit in my heart relates what they're doing to the way that God sees me. And I know the love that I have for them in the moment is about to explode, like I feel like my own heart's about to burst, and somehow God the Spirit connects that for me in the moment of God's love for me, and the space gets thin. I can't make it happen. I couldn't tell my kids, all right, I'll go, stay, you stand here, and you stand here, and you ask me this question, and you ask me this question, and then it's going to happen again. I, I don't know. You know when it else it happens for me sometimes? On occasion. It's not often. When I'm up here. When the reality of what I'm trying to press home to you through God's word gets pressed home to me. And now I've done this long enough to know that I can take a pause, I can turn around, I can get quiet. You just think I'm being dramatic. But in my heart, the space got thin. And an extraordinary experience of his affection for me as his son was given. You can't make it happen. But you can ready yourself. Paul has already told us how we can ready ourselves for this experience and, and how the work of the Holy Spirit continues to close the gap. Watch this, and this is how we'll close. The ministry of the Holy Spirit in you is one of closing the gap between what you think God feels about you and how he does actually feel about you, the change of the disposition of your heart and the work of giving you the subjective reality and affection of God's love for you. Now watch what Paul's done. Chapter 3, verse 2. Paul said, let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul said, you received this Spirit of God into your heart as you heard the gospel with faith. You experience now the ongoing work of the Spirit, this miraculous work of the Spirit, changing you and working through you, not as you perform for God, but as you continue to hear the gospel with faith. You ready yourself for these extraordinary experiences of God's affection for you ministered to you by his Holy Spirit. The gap closes in your heart between what you think God feels about you and how God feels about you as you continue to hear the gospel with faith. As you and I continue to hear the gospel with faith, God the Holy Spirit helps us to not waste God's adopting grace. Ferguson said, how many of us will get to the throne of grace one day and with a twinge of regret, say, if I had only known you were this gracious. God adopts us because he wants to. Not because he had to. Because he loves you. He redeemed you. He forgave you. He took you as his son or as his daughter. And he gave you to himself. He's your father because he wants to be. And that's why Paul says you're no longer a slave but you're a son. And if you're a son, then you're an heir through God. All of this, your justification, your redemption, the adoption that you've experienced by the grace of God and the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit to convince you of who you are and to convince you of how God sees you, all of it, Paul says, is through God. And because it's through God, and only because of God, every single ounce of glory rightly belongs to God alone. God the Father adopts you as His own by sending God the Son to redeem you, and He sends God the Spirit to convince you of who you really are. Friends, as we get ready to respond, I want you to hear this. 
while we were sinners, enslaved to our sin by our sin, in no way in ourselves worthy of God's love, and if left to ourselves always unworthy, you and I can know that we will always be loved because God sent His Son to die, His body broken on the cross in our place for our sin, His blood shed to redeem, to set free, to liberate sinful men and women like you and I that we might receive. Not earn, not achieve, and not take. Receive adoption as His Son. If you're here this morning and you would say you're a follower of Christ and you know that God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your heart, I want you to know something. God intends for you to enjoy that. He intends for you to know it and He intends for you to enjoy it. You could not be more loved. He intends for you to believe it. He intends for you to experience it. He intends for you to enjoy it, that you might live out of it with confidence and joy. And if you're here this morning and you would not say with confidence that you know that God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your heart, let me tell you this, He can. To use Paul's own language, today can be the day in the fullness of time that you receive adoption as God's Son. The question is, will you receive the love of God the Father through the grace and the work of God the Son? John Owen, one of the greatest theologians ever, said the greatest sorrow and the greatest burden that you or I could ever lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness we could ever do to Him is to not believe that He really loves you as He does. Friends, we get the chance in just a moment to respond with joy, with confidence, in celebration that as a family of redeemed sinners, as a family of adopted orphans, we get to celebrate the love of God our Father together as we receive communion. So I'm going to pray for us and we're going to give you a moment to reflect on God's word quietly and then we'll be called forward together as a family, as God's children to remember the work of God the Son in redeeming us from the curse of the law and remembering the love and the intention of God the Father in sending the Son and in sending the Spirit at work in us now to convince us of who we are. I'm going to pray for us and then we'll have a moment to reflect and respond. Father, we thank you with all of our heart, with all that we are this morning, that you didn't just save us and it would be enough. You didn't just forgive us. It would be enough. It seems crazy to even say it, but you didn't just forgive us and you didn't just make us right. You made us your own. You've given us yourself. God, let that penny drop. In my heart this morning, today and tomorrow and the next day, let the penny drop deeper. Let it drop further. Let your love for us just go deep. Lord, help us to wake up and to live out of a love and an appreciation of your disposition towards us. Shrink that gap in our heart between what we think you feel and how you th- we think you see us and how you really do. Lord, let it may change the way we love you. May it change the way we love one another. May it change the way a watching world sees the glory of your gospel and the grace of your son through your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.